My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. Hello and welcome to the Tifo Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and today I was delighted to be joined by Amy Lawrence, the writer of 89. There it is. If you're watching the video, you'll be able to see that uh, lofted aloft in front of the camera. Um, Arsenal's greatest moment told in our own words is the quote from Tony Adams on the front page. There's also a forward from Thierry Henry in my version, the hardback, um, which is delightful. Um, this book, I've been reading it over the last couple of weeks. I also watched the documentary film, which was released, I think, a couple of years ago, one or two years ago, produced by Amy. And of course, uh, as many of you will know, it tells the story of Arsenal, uh, triumphant Arsenal beating Liverpool on the final day of the league season, Division 1, in 1989. Um, the extraordinarily unlikely circumstances which led uh, to this game. Um, Arsenal was second in the league, Liverpool were first. It was essentially winner takes all and they played each other, each other on the last uh, day of the season, which is, as you I would imagine you will agree, um, extraordinarily unlikely that that will ever happen again. Um, one of the other aspects uh, which contributes to that also is that a few weeks before this happened, um, English football suffered, I mean, it's it's our, its greatest um, ever tragedy, which was, of course, the Hillsborough tragedy, um, which the consequence of which was um, to delay the game. So not only were Arsenal playing Liverpool at Anfield on the last day of the season, they were also playing each other um, two weeks after the season had finished and no other teams were playing at the same time. So it was as I said, an extraordinary set of circumstances. Um, and the story is told in the words of the players and the people that were there. Um, it's very much little bite-sized uh, chunks, little stories, I suppose, a lot from the players, including Tony Adams, Paul Merson. And there's uh, parts from Mark Leach, the sports photographer who's been on the podcast before, who was there shooting the game. Some bits from Amy herself. Um, it's, a really, it's a really, really fascinating read. Um, and it is sufficiently different from the documentary if you've seen that um, and you're interested to, to read the book you should do I think it's described by Amy's a lot of stuff that had obviously not been able to fit into the 90 minute film but was uh, really worthwhile finding some way of um, of releasing it and essentially this is this is that um, so yeah I spoke to Amy for about an hour, we talked mainly about uh, 1989, what it was like back then. Goodness me, I wasn't even alive. So I had a lot of questions, as you could imagine. Um, also, we talked about George Graham. We talked about George Graham's tactics of the time. that was particularly interesting for that specific game. We talked about the players. Um, and towards the end of the podcast, I took two or three, I think, questions from listeners about current Arsenal as well. So we talk about Granit Xhaka, uh, him being jeered off the pitch the other night. Um, we also talk about Unai Emery a little bit as well. So stick around towards the end and you can get the more up-to-date conversation. But um, I genuinely enjoyed having Amy in. It was it was really quite a lot of fun um, and understandably quite sombre in places as well. 
discussion of um, Hillsborough is very difficult and I greatly admire the way in which Amy has gone about doing that with not just the uh, the book but the film too um, who incidentally now is a writer who works for The Athletic which is handy um, so I can say that uh, if you would like to um, access The Athletic goodness me how do I say this I say this every week and somehow I managed to forget The Athletic www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Sorry. <laughs> but it's really worthwhile. So do uh, visit www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Get a 50, 50% off your annual subscription. And you can get a 30-day free trial as well to give it a try and uh, see whether or not you like it enough to pay for it, which I'm convinced that you will. Um, that's enough from me. And um, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Uh, first, I realise I just said this to you off air, but I was born in 1990 and I'm not um, an Arsenal supporter. I was aware of the result of the game, but before I watched the film and read the book, I don't think I was really aware of the significance of it, including all of the aspects, you know, that the fact that it was uh, the two teams who could have won the league at the, the last day. I think I knew that, but, you know, when you you have thoughts in your head that you don't contextualise for years, and then when you do, you go, oh, right, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Also, you know, the impact only a few weeks beforehand of, of Hillsborough as well, which obviously proliferates throughout the book and throughout the film, which is very well I suppose massively increases the emotion of the day but for people like me and for some of our listeners who are younger or who don't associate this with uh, the significance which I suppose we should be giving it can you just explain why it was such a big deal yeah and actually it's funny that you you put it that way because it makes me appreciate and understand and maybe have an excuse for why I've been so obsessed by this match for 30 years because in a way you know you you hold on to whether it's a football memory or, or a life memory or something that might have happened to you and felt important at a point in your life. But, the, you know, I've always said this is this would be my mastermind topic. Um, it's the thing, it's the game, it's the moment, it's the goal that ha- is been closest to my heart ever since it happened. Um, and I got that feeling as well from the people that I spoke to uh, in the making of, of the, the film and the book, obviously the players, George Graham, the manager, and lots of other people that were involved in the day, whether it's someone who was more neutral, like the referee or people who were working in TV at the time or mm. were, were involved somehow on that night. Um, it's, it's, a, it's something that has stayed as a memory, very, very intact, very crystal clear and very meaningful. So, that explains in a way why more than countless other sort of great comebacks or dramatic moments or things that happen in, 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 in sport that have gone down in the history books, mm. this one has a particular resonance that has, uh, you know, has lasted many, many years. The fact that it, it needs revisiting is partly one of the things I love about it is it feels very much of its moment. And because football went through this great change, very soon afterwards, it also feels like almost a signpost for, mm. first of all, what football used to be like in this sort of pre-Premier League rebrand 
international globalization of football, people being from all over the world in terms of every area, ownership, players, managers, supporters, um, this big beast that football has become. Mm. 1989 and events that, that happened around then are, are really like the last milestone of old football mm. before everything starts to change. So from a historical point of view, quite apart from, apart from the fact that it was an amazingly dramatic and significant moment um, that's just worthy of recall. Also, it has, I think, a historical significance. Mm. Um, and I think it's valuable and important to remember how old football was and what has changed. And that gives that layer of context. Can, can I take everything. a quick tangent mm. and ask you what, what has changed? Because again, to, I mean, I, yeah. I didn't exist then. Right. The, the football I've <laughs> I'm known. feeling quite old now. The but. first game I really remember was uh, Manchester United winning the treble in 1999. I think I'd right. watched games beforehand. But Which that's was the first 10 years to the day, in fact. Ten, was it really? Mm-hmm. Okay, there you go. Uh, so there, that's the first game I really remember. Um, so I feel like I've only really known football as it is now. What, what was different? God, I mean, it feels like everything. So financially, obviously, there was a huge difference. So whether you were a footballer or whether you were going to football, it was so much more uh, readily available to anyone. So in 1989, I, as a fan um, who went a lot, could basically wake up that morning, decide I was going to go to the game, rock up with, I don't know, maybe three or four quid, um give that money to a, a bloke on the turnstile and walk in and go and stand yeah. where I like. In fact, w- watching the film and, and reading the book, the thing that, that first came to my mind was that you talk about going, obviously you w- went to Anfield for the game. Yes. But there's, you just, you're just going. It's no, uh, it doesn't, obviously it's a big deal because of the occasion, but there's no discussion of how you got the ticket, how difficult it was, how you managed to be in this select group. I think you, I'm not sure if this is in the book, but you mentioned somewhere that your parents didn't know you were going or your brother that's covered right. for you. Yeah, that's right. So I love the idea that you, well, as you say, Well, this is the other thing that's phenomenally different about the entire experience that, you know, you can't imagine um, doing something important nowadays and not having a record of it or your experience of it through the lens yeah. of a camera or your phone. And I kind of find it amazing that this important event happened. I don't have a single photograph from that night. I never mm. took a camera. We didn't have phones. If you needed to communicate with anybody, you had to find a pay phone and have yeah. some change. Um, and actually, in a way, that did me a massive favour because if I'd have been contactable, I probably couldn't go because I had my A-levels um, coming up, uh, you know, in the in the week or so that followed yeah. the, the, the end of the season. And I was only, I only really got away with it. My parents were overseas and um, I concocted this ridiculous story because I knew it wasn't realistic to say that I wasn't going to be watching the game. So I said, I was going to, went to a friend's house who was also a football fan. We were going to revise together and then watch the game at their house. And I would stay over because I had to kind of give this impression to my folks that I was going to be, um, not, you know, not traveling to Anfield because so close to my A-levels, goodness knows you couldn't be, you know, doing anything like that. And, uh, yeah, it it worked because there were no mobile phones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, if you couldn't get hold of someone, you couldn't get hold of someone. Yeah. So all your, the way you lived and all your memories was all, you know, if you wanted to meet up with someone, you had to make a plan via mail or, you know, writing a letter or a note or landline or... (laughs) Or knocking on the door. Or knocking on the door, exactly. It was simpler times. And Mm. 
I think just from the point of view of, of the of how we experienced our football then, you you just everybody just sort of wandered about doing stuff. But it was you didn't have to plan it two months in advance. You didn't have to, um, you know, as a seventeen year old as I was then, you know. I didn't need a credit card to book a ticket for a match mm. two months in advance and be a member and all this mm. kind of malarkey. You just you just sort of wandered about watching football if you're a football fan. And the other thing about it is that in terms of fandom overall, football fans were not regarded in a very good light, let's say. And socially, if you like football, you were you were looked down on mm. by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, hooliganism was at a, at its height in the 70s and, early, and the and the 80s, mm-hmm. um, fans were treated like crap. You know, if you if you travelled around, the police thought you were, an, you know, an enemy. It was pretty uh, not uncommon to get a, a clunk of a truncheon, you know, if mm. you were just doing nothing. Did or, you get clunked with truncheons? Um, I wouldn't say I got clunked with a truncheon, but uh, um, I did get carried off the North Bank by four police... <laughs> people um one on each arm and one on each leg wow. on the final day of the north bank i was only just on it like in a in a sit-in what did you do nothing i nothing. just didn't want to go home it was right. the end of the north bank which was okay. my uh sacred place at the time and right. they didn't really give people a lot of time to say their yeah, goodbyes right. they sort of wanted everybody they wanted to clear it yeah and uh um i don't know a few hundred people sat around and what just didn't want to go <laughs> And in the end, they obviously got fed up with us all and said, right, everyone's got to go home now. And I think, I was like, no, I'm not going. And they were like, nice. yes, you are. <laughs> physically manhandled out the, out the ground. Um, wow. But on another level, I remember going to Ellen Road around that time. They had this big moat. There was the away, away section and then there was this moat and, uh, and then the fence. And I ended up, um, gosh, this is embarrassing, uh, clambering up on this fence somehow like, uh, after a goal and I realised I couldn't get back because of the this moat and I think that was one of those occasions where because I wasn't a bloke I mm. got away with it Right. and some uh, member of the West Yorkshire constabulary you know came and got hold of me and got me down and said you're bloody lucky you are and shoved me back in right um, well also I mean I, but, I'd, yeah, I'd hate it, to like repaint history <laughs> that I don't know but mm. I, the assumption I always have had was that um, women didn't go to football games I mean of course how, we did how many of you were oh, it was less than nowadays than I mean now, that yeah. kind of uh, stereotype of sort of 18 to 30 year old shaven headed blokes yeah. with tattoos was you know not a completely fair reflection of the truth but certainly age wise there was a you know that made up a lot of mm. a lot of a probably greater percentage of you know crowds have got older yeah partly because tickets have got more expensive and yeah. you you know as a as a teenager if you wanted to you could pretty much go and watch your team play all around the country for not much more than your pocket money yeah. now that's not applicable to most kids today mm-hmm. so i think generally it's a, an older environment around uh, Monday football. And obviously it's infinitely more um, diverse in terms of uh, not just types of people, but where people come from, you know, the football tourism aspect, mm-hmm. which was yeah. much less uh, of a, 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 something that you saw in those days. It wasn't never, there was always big sort of Scandinavian supporters clubs that came over or what have you, but you didn't get the international fan bases or the, you know, holiday makers that take in a game um, mm. because it's something that you would do if you were traveling. So all that kind of vibe 
was was very different. And the other, of course, majorly significant thing was we had terraces. And of course, that was a, for a lot of people, an attraction of the football experience. Mm. There was something very visceral about about being part of this swaying, moving crowd. It was yeah. a very physical experience. Is it more physically more of a collective, I suppose? Oh isn't my it? goodness. And I have to say that I mostly loved it. I mean, it's, it's complex to articulate things like that now because of what happened at Hillsborough and how things had to change. But there were, you know, it, it, when a goal was scored, if you were on a terrace, more often than not, you went kind of flying. You, yeah. you, you know, the whole mass of the crowd moved. You could find yourself 20 yards away from where you started. Yeah. Um, and it was sort of amazing. Yeah. I mean, it was a big adrenaline rush. Obviously, there were times when it was dangerous and in the w- worst possible imaginable way, that was the case at Hillsborough. Um, but uh, most people who went to football those days and stood on terraces will have memories of it being a level of uncomfortable where mm. it was a bit scary. Yeah. And I pretty much always made a point of having a, a crash barrier behind me. Right. So I could go that way. Yeah. But y- if you had one in front of you and then suddenly a load of people are yeah. coming down on you, it's um, terribly frightening. So yeah. those I mean, I'm just painting a picture of what it was like going to football. That's just, we've talked for God knows how long just about fans. But obviously TV, so another big change from today. And when you, sometimes I can't believe, it made made fans much more knowledgeable Mm. because you can watch football or footballers or highlights from pretty much anywhere in the world. But back then, if a a player arrived and you signed someone, you probably you might well not have ever seen them play before or paid much attention to them because if you sign someone from let's say uh, Sheffield Wednesday or Stoke as Arsenal did in 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 that team in 1989, um, you, you know you you might not have been that bothered about noticing who the you know the right back was or yeah. if you'd even played against Stoke who were in a different division to you that often mm. um, and. You couldn't go on YouTube and find a highlights video because there was no YouTube and there were no highlights videos. Mm -hmm. And even if you think about how clubs operated, you know, if you had a a scout, the scout would go and watch the team you were about to play in a week or so, or they'd go and watch a player who the manager was maybe interested in. But these dossiers of knowledge and the ability to tactically analyse minutiae and all the data that is part of modern football... Mm didn't exist yeah so even the way that managers managed or coached or the the way that players were with each other if a player turned up at a new club as well they they felt they had to sort of prove themselves because more often than not they you know these guys didn't know each other but what they did have was shared language Mm. and shared cultural references so if your dressing room is pretty much exclusively British, which they almost all were in 1989, um, you can imagine that the vibes within the camp mm. are completely different mm. to what, we're, what we would see in, in today's world. And another thing that just a little part of the things I found interesting about working on the film and the book was the little details that people remembered that really kind of symbolise how much things have changed. So for example, on the team coach, some you might find 
two defenders, Tony Adams and Lee Dixon, talking about the winger that they're playing against. And you, you know what? If he if he's coming down my side, I, I need you five yards closer to me. I mean, presumably all this is now happening with videos and, mm. and, and all the... Little files. But they would have that conversation person to person on the coach because nobody had headphones. Nobody yeah. sat... Or, or if you were talking about generating a team spirit, there'd be a card school on the on the bus. So the guys that want to play cards would sit in a in a four or whatever and gamble their whatever fivers or or whatever it might be and play cards the whole way up mm. from London to Manchester or I'd not what have you. That. And so even if you think about how a, a team spirit develops, mm. that's the way they communicate with each other, the bonds that they had were completely different to a modern dressing room. Yeah. And even when they would, you know, training was, n- there was nowhere near as much time spent at a training ground for a player compared to today. Mm. You know, the idea that you come, you, you train, you go to the gym, you have a massage, you maybe have a yoga session or, or go to see the psychologist Sleep or in one of the pods. You know, whatever it might be. Um, <laughs> And eat. I mean, obviously the food was, you know, mm. steak and chip stuff, egg and chips. It wasn't kind of chicken and pasta and broccoli or whatever. Um, Athletically, was there a huge difference then, do you think? I mean, Well, I mean, obviously remember- drinking, the drinking culture still very much existed. And if you think about how players would go and socialise, they would be particular days of the week. I mean, the Tuesday club in Arsenal's case was, mm-hmm. the, was the way they did it because... They would usually have a day off on Wednesday. So they'd right. come in on Tuesday, do a bit of training um, at Highbury, get in the stadium. And then, you know, they'd, they'd come in with their, with their gear to go, to go straight out from right. training. Is, and, that, is uh, that the reason for the name of Alan Davies' podcast? It, it, uh, no, it is indeed. It stems from, from right. you know, the, the I thought it was just social activity of the times. Yeah, right. not at all. So, I mean, um, yeah. the, the George, George Graham then... But how long was this team in situ before they won the league that year? I mean, how, how many of its kind of main functioning parts were there? Because the film paints a picture that many of them were kind of brought in in the, in the one or two years beforehand by, by Graham himself. Is that, is that accurate? Well, George Graham arrived in um, 1986. And in, you know, the, the couple of years prior to the 88-89 season began this process of regenerating and his whole philosophy was quite interesting. He started off as a youth coach. Um, Terry Venables had invited him to Crystal Palace when he was uh, manager there and given him the youth team as his first experience of coaching. And what he noticed working with the young players is they listened to him and did everything that they, they were told. It's as simple so as that. walking into a, 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 a dressing room with much more established players, you know, there was some of the guys like Charlie Nicholas and Kenny Sansom and Tony Woodcock. And, they, you know, these were internationals. They were, they were stars of their day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think then they were a bit complacent and, and they didn't really want to be moulded that much. And George thought, if I get, I can, why can't I do what I did with the youth team, which was absolutely create something and mold it myself mm-hmm. if i want to do that i need players who are going to listen to everything i've got to say and they're going to do it and they're going to learn and they're going to work mm-hmm. and the players who are going to do that are young or hungry as hell because they're playing in lower divisions or smaller clubs and this is their big chance so he deliberately targeted um players that he liked uh and it was like a a kind of jigsaw puzzle of putting together 
the, the, the ones that he was willing to work with who were already there, the, the youth team, he was blessed that he arrived and there was a phenomenal generation. Manchester United's class of 92 is obviously mm. hugely famous, but Arsenal had, had their own class of a few years previous where when you think of the names that came through, Tony Adams, who's possibly the best friend of the club I've ever had, mm-hmm. David Rocas and Michael Thomas, two unbelievably gifted young London midfield players. Paul Merson, who was a super skilled you know, um, player of his time, who was mm. a, a maverick, but he had touches of genius in, in his boots. Um, I'm probably missing a few. I, 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 my brain's not working properly. It's been a long, long night last night. Apologies. But there was, there was a sort of core of five or six mm. young players who were seriously talented yeah. and had the right mental uh, attitude. So bringing those guys through and giving them experience, getting rid of the prima donnas, bringing in the likes of Lee Dixon and Steve Bolt from Stoke City, um, Nigel Winterburn from Wimbledon, Brian Marwood from Sheffield Wednesday, Alan Smith from Leicester. Uh, Most of these guys came either in the summer of 88, the beginning of the season, or perhaps the season before. Right. So it was... Very recently assembled. He put put it together... Mm. Quite quickly, really. Mm. Um, and were those players that came, like Lee Dixon, as an example, was he considered at the time to be sort of a workhorse, really, presumably, if he was in and around all the, of this? The Lee Dixon story is just another perfect example of the kind of wonders of how things have changed. So George Graham's great scouting method was to get the local newspapers from all the regions. And in those days, local newspapers were the absolute place where you got your knowledge. Mm. You know, um, and each each local newspaper would have their own reporter that covered their patch, who would usually be pretty pally with their manager. And George used to get all these papers and he would get his secretary to cut the uh, the journalists um, kind of column out every Monday morning and they would chuck the rest of the newspapers away Mm. and he would read through them. And he noticed that Lee Dixon, young defender of Stoke City, had been player of the year twice in a row. Mm-hmm. And he was a fullback. Mm-hmm. And George thought, a fullback getting player of the year twice? He's got to be quite good. So he went to watch uh, Lee Dixon. And while he was there, he thought, oh, I like the look of this big bruising centre half next to him, who was Steve Bold. And that was scouting. <laughs> and he bought them both. And he put together yeah. the, what would become the iconic back four of not just that generation, but any generation yeah. for less than a million quid. Yeah. Because Steve Bold, Lee Dixon and Nigel Winterburn cost less than a million pounds between them mm. and Tony Adams was already there. Yeah. It's pretty astonishing really, isn't it? I mean, last for last week's podcast, we had a guy called Nikos Overhaul in from Statsbaum, whose job it is to liaise with uh, football clubs, including Premier League football clubs. And they offer, Statsbaum offer various uh, analytical services and uh, scouting being one of the main ones. What he was talking us through terms of how clubs and uh, companies like Statsbom now search for managers and players who may be um, undervalued let's say is uh, it's incredibly complicated and you know it's, it's such a um, such an in-depth process I love the idea that what 20 how what are we now oh 30 years ago crikey okay 30 years ago so. um, <laughs> it was as simple as that I mean that's that sounds kind of lucky in a way does it well I mean no because if you as a manager, if you didn't bother to do that... No, but just seeing Steve Bold there at the time, you weren't there to see him, but then... Mm. Because otherwise, how are you going to see him? Yeah. Because nobody's videoing stuff. Yeah. Or or making, you know, uh, highlights reels. Mm. Just 
didn't exist. Yeah. This is an advert. Quick reminder that this uh, episode of the TFO Football Podcast is supported by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. And if you're enjoying listening to Amy Lawrence talking about football with me on today's podcast, uh, you really should sign up to The Athletic because Amy is one of the host of incredibly talented and rich-veined writers. Now, what does rich-veined mean? That's what you're asking. I'm not really sure. But I think if I were to try and describe it myself, I would say that it means um, excellently educated, uh, very insightful, very good journalism-y and uh, good at uh, um, really cutting to the heart of the matter. You know what I'm saying? And providing excellent editorial writing, which is uh, precisely what The Athletic does. So rich-veined indeed is the correct was the correct choice of words and i won't be redoing this bit because i said the right thing that's that's totally accurate um but yes amy there's david ornstein uh there is i mean michael bailey if you like norwich you know there's him uh there is phil hay if you like the northeast and other things too um goodness gracious me there's too many to name but you can get a 30-day free trial to go and look for yourself so if you are a supporter of a club which you feel does not have Requisite coverage beyond your local media, um, and you want to learn a little bit more about your football club, um, get a 30-day free trial by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. Find out who your writer or writers are who write predominantly on your club. Uh, find out about the level of access that they get. Find out about the exclusives. Um, it really is the place to be if you support particularly a Premier League club at the moment. They have a handful of um, championship clubs as well. But if you support a Premier League club, particularly a lesser well-supported club, for example, um, Norwich again. Michael Bailey uh, worked at the Eastern Daily Press for a very long time. He has all these connections at the club. His first piece for The Athletic was a long interview with Delia Smith, for example. It's the perfect place to read about Norwich. Um, and you can go and try it for 30 days. If you like it and you want to stay, you get 50% off an annual subscription, which works out to be about £2.50 per month. So it's totally affordable and it's very worthwhile. Um, but that's not all. Today, this podcast is also brought to you by... Da, 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 da. Beer 52. Yes, that's correct. Beer 52. Uh, I'm holding up beer in front of a camera here for you to see if you are watching. If not, just listen to the... On the bottle. Doesn't that sound like a beer bottle? That's because it is. Uh, visit beer52.com forward slash TIFO, by which I mean beer52, as in the numbers 52.com forward slash TIFO. Um, you can get eight free beers, nay, ten free beers, because the offer has increased. There are so many free beers. All you've got to do is pay four ninety five uh, to cover the cost of delivery, um, and you get a, uh, a selection of eight to ten I mean, 10 free beers sent to your house. I believe it's the next day. Uh, so that's exciting, isn't it? They come uh, in slightly different uh, themes each month, I think. Uh, so essentially, if you if you sign up, you can cancel any time. You don't need to pay for the subscription or anything. You can just get your eight or 10 free beers. And if you want to, I think if you, you would uh, be silly to do that, but I think you would enjoy staying because every month you get a different case with a different theme. Uh, themes have included Germany, Korea, Norway, South Africa, California, and Finland. Those are countries. I don't know if they're themes, but 
themes around the culture, maybe, of those uh, countries. I mean, essentially, without reading more to you, uh, the reason I like this is because you pay a fiver, you get 10 free beers. If you're watching the football all the weekend, you can share them around with your friends. I find that the craft beer market is so uh, massively full that I have no idea where to start, and I'm not an aficionado. So having a box that comes to my house with 10 things like this, which I can try uh, to see if uh, I enjoy them, um, and they're free, I mean, it doesn't really get much better than that. Please do drink responsibly, though. Um, that's very, very important. So uh, there you go. That is beer52.com forward slash TIFO. 4 for the postage. Um, and get yourself 10 free beers. Anyway, back to the episode. Thanks for listening. Um, can I talk? Can I ask you a little bit about the way that George Graham had the team play? Because one of the things that we do here at TIFO is we make videos about football tactics and yes. a big part of our audience is interested in that. What I found fascinating from, from reading the book and watching the film was the idea that the tactics of, on the final day were, were changed seemingly for the for the first time they played that formation or that that took that approach not quite but I'm not quite okay well, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little <laughs> bit uh, print the myth but would you would you um would you talk to me about the context of Absolutely. that a little bit because that seems like a, it's a big deal even then right? well i mean you know when you think about how much tactical analysis there is generally in football nowadays i mean i, I it was that you know slight stereotypical old line about you know uh, uh tactics are they a little minty sweet like Tic Tacs because people just didn't people really weren't that interested in tactics mm -hmm. in those days um, and there was definitely not that much variety as you might get nowadays and so much thought put into specific approaches for specific games or specific players I think most clubs would try and identify a way of playing for themselves and that was sort of how they played yeah. for better or for worse and 4-4-2 uh, was pretty standard um, back then and you know, that's certainly how, how Arsenal played, or it would maybe be 4-4-1-1 because the kind of strike partnership thing. I mean, everybody had a, had a strike partnership. The idea that you would play one up front or three or this mm. or that. The only thing that might be interesting is, whether it is, is the dynamics of your strike partnerships. It tended to be one big guy and one little guy, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who could really hold the ball up well and a kind of cleverer, um, maybe faster uh, inventive player who could play off mm. um, the number nine, if you like. Mm. Number nine and num number 10 were sort of fairly standardised within. I mean, that's another thing. Even like shirt numbers. Yeah. Well, one to 11. Yeah. No messing. Did no they, at this time, did they keep the same numbers every every game? Because I know, I know before, I'm not sure at what you point tended that to, You tended to. Um, but I mean, obviously mm. there would be, there would be changes. In fact, in that game, Steve Bold, who was a centre-back, played 10, which was right. shocking. Okay. Because, was there a reason be, for that? Yes, because Arsenal played three centre-backs, right. which was very surprising. So okay. they needed another number from somewhere right. and it ended up being the 10. So so four four two was the order of the day and Arsenal played it and had it down to an art form for most of the season. It was incredibly effective. Mm. Um, the back four, which was this iconic back four, this was their first season together and it clicked pretty quickly and pretty well. Uh, in front of them, they had a midfield four. They had two terrific wide players, Brian Marwood, uh, who they signed from Sheffield Wednesday, uh, who was just very effective at driving up the wing, beating his man, and he had a fantastic cross on him. David Rocastle on the other side, a bit more of a creative player, um, strong, had Brazilian-esque skills. Everybody loved Rocky. Uh, in the midfield, there would be two of Kevin Richardson, Michael Thomas, Paul Davis, uh, who 
played a little bit less during that season after he punched Glenn Cockrell in the jaw, broke his jaw off the ball and ended up with a with a trial by television first time. That was ever used wow. days long, long before VAR um, with a very long ban. And then up front, it was generally Alan Smith, who was the big number nine with mm. Paul Merson playing off him. Right. But... George Graham, being a bit of a student of tactics, he used to read books from America about sports psychology and, and specialist things. He was quite, he had a quite broad mm. uh, interest. He developed this, this uh, thirst for knowledge about things like tactics and psychology and stuff that was, that was quite a little bit of ahead of his, of his day, really. Mm. And he looked at Liverpool. Liverpool were the absolute gods of football in that era. The dominant team of the best part of 20 years, pro you know, probably the best team in Europe, mm. uh, as well as, you know, being regarded as almost unstoppable domestically. And they had just won the double in, in 1988 and had a wonderful team full of so much quality. And the danger that George Graham identified came from the flanks. So John Barnes and Ray Houghton were two absolutely stupendous players. Barnes in particular was, was just someone that people couldn't cope with in that day and age. Mm. And they had brilliant strikers, Ian Rush, John Aldridge, who were clinical. So his feeling was we have to stop Barnes and Houghton getting the ball. Now, how are we going to do this? I'm going to put an extra centre-back in, three at the back. I'm going to push up my two full-backs, Lee Dixon and Nigel Winterburn. They are going to be right on top of Barnes and Houghton mm. and try and keep them out of mm. causing trouble. Keep them too far distant from uh, Liverpool centre-forwards. They've got two centre-forwards and our, our, my three of Tony Adams, Steve Bolt and David O'Leary will take, take care of those strikers. Mm. So that was his vision of nullifying Liverpool. And... Because Liverpool and Arsenal were supposed to play originally earlier on in the season, it was actually scheduled to be the week after the Hillsborough disaster happened. George Graham had one practice run, which was away at Old Trafford, right. which was uh, a little earlier in the season. And he thought that was an ideal type of game to try it out. And the players were a bit like, what, what are we doing this for? Like, we've been 4-4-2 all season and it works. Why change? So there was some scepticism and he had to convince his players mm. that they were doing it for a reason. But the relationship between the managers and the player, manager and the players was so strong then, they believed him so intensely um, that they just went along with, with mm. what he said, even if they might have had their doubts. It's a big gamble, isn't it? Yeah, and the game at Old Trafford was a really... Um, crazy one it was played in driving rain and Arsenal went one nil up Tony Adams who was like the you know captain fantastic scored a goal and then late on in the game the ball came across and Tony Adams went for it with his left foot which is not his favoured foot tried to bit of a desperate clearance and it was just these terrible conditions like uh, sleet rain in your face and he sliced the ball and it just looped in the worst imaginable possible way over mm. John Lukic and he scored an own goal mm which was uh, one of the moments where the donkey jibes that were associated with him were in full flow. And the next morning's papers had Tony Adams with a pair of donkey ears, photoshopped rather crudely in 1989 style. Um, mm. So, you know, even then there was no social media as such, but you could be vilified 
as a player and have a hard time and yeah. get reputations and get grief. Even a game away from winning. Well, people used to throw carrots yeah. at him. Yeah. It's just mad. But anyway, yeah. I digress. Um, the practice game ended 1-1 and George Graham went back to 4-4-2 and then when it was time for the final game of the season, first against second, essentially a winner takes all match for the title. Mm. Sort of like the FA Cup final and the... Premier League wrapped into into one 90 minutes except Arsenal had to score two yeah yeah, yeah. there's a specific <laughs> set of circumstances for the away team to win it they've got to win away from home by two goals and Liverpool are so brilliant that nobody imagines it's humanly possible that they're going mm. to lose at home by two goals yeah so it was a really specialist set of circumstances and what made it more interesting was that n- 90 of the 92 professional clubs in England had finished all their matches Mm -hmm. and this was the only one left so literally the whole football nation stopped what they were doing on that Friday night switched on their television screens we only had four channels then anyway and uh, straight on to ITV Brian Moore's commentary away you go I mean I I know a lot of people a lot of the players say this in the book and in the film uh, it could never happen again that set of circumstances I mean it, Mm. it it's unfathomable it couldn't, that it, would it couldn't happen again. again and the reason it couldn't happen again is because of Hillsborough yeah and Hillsborough had obviously a very direct logistical influence on the fact that this game ended up being a kind of extra at the end of the season because of all the rescheduling that went on but m- much yeah. much much more importantly the emotional backdrop because of the Hillsborough mm. disaster was really unlike anything I've ever seen in football Um, and it created an atmosphere around the day and around the night that in many ways makes it so much more meaningful than Mm. just a pure sporting event Mm. Uh, and I while I'll always feel it's difficult to find the right words but very very profound sadness and regret about any you know any reminder of the Hillsborough tragedy. In some ways, it. I don't know. I feel very. Uh, uh, it, there's a kind of personal attachment. I think that any football fan from the time feels. It touched everyone, and in a way, nobody knew what to do or how to say, how to express themselves. Mm. It was really difficult. You didn't even know if you felt like football should carry on anymore. And. Some somewhere in your mind you wondered whether it was right that Liverpool would win the league yeah um, so it was complicated emotionally because of course you want you know you're 17 years old and the last thing your team the last time your team won the league was the year you were born mm. and here you are and of course you want your team to win the league but you just don't know if it's right so yeah. it was it was quite difficult to understand it all I mean it, it's there's a uh exceptionally moving exit in the in the centre of the book um, I can't remember the name of the, of the author Laura Lawrence Laura Lawrence no um, relation would you would you briefly talk, talk us through that yeah it's, I would it's, I mean it's obviously, it blew my mind um, yeah. when I first read it it's uh, Laura's a Sheffield Wednesday fan and she wrote a blog a few years ago about her personal memories of that day and her family home was very you know very close to the Hillsborough Stadium and she depicts in a very childlike way exactly what she saw. And obviously what she didn't see was what happened inside the ground. Yeah. But what she did see was 
fans turning up before the game and she describes the atmosphere very vividly. And then she describes the mood in her house with her family, obviously watching what was going on on the telly and finding out the, uh, the news bulletins that just got worse and worse and worse. And then she describes people coming, you know, particularly Liverpool supporters coming back to their cars or their minivans mm. or trying to get back and how their parents opened the door of their house and literally grabbed people off the street and made them come in and phone their families. Mm-hmm. And even the kind of big dial tone telephone that was wired to the wall because of course, you know, it was just not easy to contact anybody instantly yeah. in those days. So you were reliant on something like that. Mm. And, you know, them bringing people into the house and giving them a cup of tea or holding them or, you know, making them phone their families and just giving them a, a space of, of refuge Yeah. on what must have been the most unimaginably difficult circumstance. Yeah. Just is profoundly moving personal uh, side of the story. Um, I think it was the perspective for me as well. I think mm. you, you said at the beginning, obviously it's written in a quite a childlike way uh, from the perspective of a child who is not totally, I think, uh, what's the right way of putting this? I think it's a kind of, has a unique perspective. You know, mm. often children see things in a totally different way to mm. how adults do. And I think, yeah, the way in which it is written from that perspective the descriptions of the people that are there in the house, the descriptions of her parents, the way that her mm. parents kind of panic and sadness impact her. Mm. It's, um, yeah, it's like, it's intensely moving mm. in the, in the middle. I mean, it was a, one of the, it was the biggest challenge we faced really in all of this, yeah. which was how, how to depict what happened in the most sensitive way possible because essentially the majority of the story being told from an Arsenal perspective is is a story of something uplifting and triumphant and memorable. And yet you have the intertwined kind of inextricable kind of relationship that the moment has with the worst episode in English football history. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, I, I felt that it was, more more helpful maybe to look at it from the outside looking in yeah. rather than trying to you know be a Hillsborough book or a film mm-hmm. and be you know it needs far too much depth yeah and there are people who have made films and written books about Hillsborough mm-hmm. that are absolutely vital and important um and need to be seen and read mm-hmm. again and again and again yeah and but but it was trying to make sure that we covered what was important, but without feeling obligated to try and turn this book or this film into a a Hillsborough book or film, which we couldn't do. But I think it's, I think it's, I think it's done really well. Um, And also, I mean, I remember another, another very moving aspect of it. I think it was Lee Dixon who talks about um, handing the flowers over to the Mm. fans at the beginning of the game Mm. and the moment that he lets go of the flowers, how Mm. it, how it hits him and 
he describes a sort of a, a mixture of emotions really he's really g'd up for for the game and he finally realizes the significance of the of the game he's about to play but at the same time there's this overwhelmingly uh, emotional aspect to handing off the flowers and i think see, seeing it through the eyes of the players because is is very important because presumably it, it must have had an a huge impact on them going going to play there as the, the final game as well i mean they were they weren't immune to it of course of course and i think that it's a really interesting thing to have talked to them about it because now that they're adults you can look at it as a through a slightly different prism yeah but you know they were in most of them like in their early 20s at that time and not that experienced in life of like very difficult life moments and very much living in the football bubble which um is normal mm -hmm. uh, within football and probably necessary that you have to just go in and work you know it's it's their job to try and get ready to win football matches. And I think that a lot of them found it too difficult to try and think about it too much yeah. in a way. And it's something that they sort of wrestle with later on, but acknowledge that at the time they felt that all they could do was be guided by the authorities. Get, let someone tell me what to do. You know, as players, they just wanted someone else to tell them how they should act because it was almost too overwhelming to, to tr for them to try and figure out yeah. independently well, what, what, to, what to do. It's the kind of natural way to respond to a situation like that, I suppose, yeah. isn't it? It's to almost kind of... Yeah, but the handing over them the flowers was very symbolic um, and helpful, I think, mm. because everybody felt they had to pay the best respects they could, but somehow be focused on doing their job. Yeah. And it was quite hard mix, I yes. think. And helpful that they had some sort of mechanism mm. on the night to do that. Yeah. Well, can I say uh, to you that I think it's lovely. I really, I really like the book. I love the film as well. And I think what I like about it so much is, I suppose, the way in which it is told. It seems like a very pure, um, a pure vision of football, which is told through different people's stories you know and I spoke to a couple of people about it here when I was doing some preparation for the podcast my girlfriend's dad is a big Arsenal fan he remembers the game and I was talking to him about his stories of it even my girlfriend who's really not into football I think she was five or six at the time she remembers the day because uh, she remembered this lovely plastic chair that she'd been <laughs> given from the Irish Centre in Harlow Essex and uh, when Michael Thomas scored the goal, her dad threw it at the ceiling and it broke. She was, <laughs> she was furious, but she's always associated that with the game. Um, and I spoke to Mark Leach as well, who I, th I think you know, who features in the book. Uh, he's a friend, friend of my dad's and uh, I was asking him about it. Obviously he was there taking his photographs. But I, as I said, I, I would really encourage people to, to watch the film and, and read the book. I, yeah, I love the way that... That it is that it is told as stories. I suppose that's really what football is, and it's e it's easy to forget that now because there is a kind of constant stream, as you said, of um, constant stream of uh, of of media, really. And you're up to date with what's happening at all times. Everyone's story seems to be kind of uh, individual to themselves and their phone. But the, yeah, the way in which it's told, it's um, it's lovely. Really, it really is. It really is lovely. Thank you so much. Would you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about Arsenal now, which might not be quite as lovely? Won't but, be uh, anywhere near as lovely, but shoot. <laughs> okay, so we have a couple of questions from TIFO listeners. The first is from Essien. Uh, why is Xhaka captain? Should he stay as captain, especially after what happened against Palace? What did happen against Palace, Amy? Okay, so I think what happened against Palace was that Granite Xhaka 
um, and everything he represents to people and how he feels about things, everything just came to a head. I don't think this was an isolated moment. I think it was a long time in the making. Uh, I also think it's a, a situation where it, allowed, it actually was part of something bigger. It became a sort of vehicle for a lot of people to express a lot of frustrations generally. So while it was about that particular moment and that particular player, I also think it was actually about the manager, the team, the style of play, the ambition, a whole bunch of stuff that got crystallised in this almost opportunistic moment for an expression of emotion. On a very precise way, Arsenal thrown away a two-goal lead. Shaka was substituted. And as he began to leave the field quite slowly, um, some people were aggrieved that the captain shouldn't be running off the pitch so mm. that uh, a replacement can come on and try and change the game. Uh, there was ironic jeers. It's not the first time this has happened. He had the same uh, in Arsenal's home game against Aston Villa where they were trying to come back from a difficult situation. And halfway across the pitch, he, he obviously got under his skin to the point where it pushed the it pushed the final button, and he reacted, cupped his ear. He was seen to uh, express himself in uh, industrial language. Took off through his captain's armband to the pit to the floor, rather than actually giving it to the player who would then wear it, and uh, ripped off his shirt. And, batted away um, Emery's attempt at a ham- handshake and just spit down the tunnel. Mm. In doing, in so doing, the ironic jeers turned into quite vociferous boos. Yeah. And it was really very ugly on the part of pretty much everyone. Uh, I, w- I felt at the time as a kind of human emotional reaction that Granite Xhaka let himself down, but so did a lot of the supporters really. Uh, it was a, it was not a nice thing to witness mm. from from anyone. Uh, and and why was he made captain in the first place? I think the clever move maybe would have been for Emery to make Aubameyang captain on the pitch and Xhaka captain, club captain. Right. Because there's a lot of things that Granite Xhaka does off the pitch where he is the absolute perfect captain. Right. He's very much liked in the dressing room. He's got some authority. He's the guy who keeps people um, on their toes, uh, who who kind of sets the bar in terms of standards of behaviour, which maybe doesn't feel like a great thing to say after what happened on the pitch. But um, he's really highly regarded as being captaincy material in all those areas. Mm. He always fronts up. He'll t- do his talking and he tries to stay positive and set a good example. Aubameyang is a much cleaner choice to be your on the field captain because part of the problem is that there are people who argue that Xhaka shouldn't be an automatic pick and you do get into difficult territory if your captain is not an automatic pick yeah Uh, because of the aspects of his game that make him vulnerable individual errors that quite often cost goals switching off lapses of concentration um, lack of mobility uh, you know recklessness that's all part of his game, mm. as well as being a good passer, a good technician and the things that he does well. He's a mixed bag player and that makes it difficult, particularly because midfield is Arsenal's massive problem area. 
And it feels like the the team is dysfunctional because the midfield is dysfunctional. And frankly, the midfield has been dysfunctional for mm. pretty much the whole season. He can't get the balance right. Doesn't matter yeah. who he picks. Doesn't matter what formation he picks. The manager cannot get a functional midfield yet. Mm. So it feels like that heart of the team and that heartbeat of the team being the captain is an easy target to be a, a, a lightning rod, rod yeah. and be a problem area. Okay. So, Great. Yeah. Uh, the next question is from Sir Sage. It seems as if the Unai Emery experiment has failed and should be ending soon. Who would come in as a genuine improvement from the current coach? Uh, I mean, do you agree with that firstly? And uh, if so, even if you don't, uh, a little hypothetical, um, your preference for the next coach would be interesting to hear. I think that um, what's com- what's complicated all perceptions of Unai Emery is that 18 months on, people seem as sort of bewildered as ever by what he's trying to achieve. And the fact that there is no discernible, the word identity has been used a lot, is very unhelpful. Um, he's been backed. He's been given some quite expensive, fancy tools to play with. Um, he's got a massive problem with Meza Erzul, which doesn't help. Uh, I think that, you know, that, he, that he, he lacks the sort of authority really over what he's doing and the belief this is exactly what we're trying to do here. Nobody can figure it out. Um, there's obviously a lot of tensions and pressures now within the dressing room. So when people ask the question like, should he be sacked? Sometimes it's helpful to flip a question like that on its head and say, if you're trying to look at the reasons why you should be sacked, what are the reasons that you should stay? And it's really hard at the moment to present a compelling argument to say, Unai Emery must stay because all these things are going well, because lots of things are not going well. Um, the, you, you know, the, the powers that be can't be making decisions based on what fans think. They have to do it on what they think. Is that not how and it works? He, well, funnily enough. And at the moment, the noises are that they remain happy with Emery, but it's quite difficult to see that they can sustain this kind of almost an acceptance of of mediocrity and problems mm-hmm. for too much longer without thinking if it carries on you through the season. Yeah. Arsenal should, with the squad that they've got, be having a real good go at the top four and not relying on winning the Europa League. Particularly with the context what, of other teams performing poorly yeah. for obvious reasons. Right? Yes, exactly. So um I think that it's it, it feels like it really needs to be quite a fluid situation. Yeah. And personally, I think it wouldn't be a bad time to be starting to think of someone else if you're not convinced as a board that this man is the man for a successful season. Mm-hmm. And so far, there's not enough evidence of that. There's not enough evidence of improvement, which after yeah. 18 months, there should be. Let's say you were in charge then. Mm. Who would you hire? Who's your? Who's the dream? Well, I suppose dream <sighs> and also realistic. Um. Exactly. I mean, you have to go for someone who's available and that's the biggest problem because if you have a kind of yeah. fantasy, money, no object situation, then maybe you go for someone that you think can, can culturally transform the club and mm-hmm. can come in and take a team and give him give an imprint immediately and give a buzz immediately and also yet have a kind of mid to long-term strategy for taking the club back to where they want to be and where they want to be when you listen to the uh, the owners and the people who run the club is challenging for the Premier League and Champions League. 
Yeah. They're obviously quite far away from that at the moment. Yes. So um, you have to be realistic and think who can come in now and do a better sort of interim job because then Emery is doing. And I think when you look at available people now, if Allegri is available, it's kind of a madness not to be considering that, yeah. given his track record. It's funny, um, isn't it? It feels like there are a few people available. I mean, Allegri is the name which is associated with every kind of top level job. Yeah. I mean, obviously know. Mourinho is available and that would be a very, very complex <laughs> uh, a, emotional thing to try and get your head around. I mean, here's, you know, the, the, yeah. the guy who talked about a specialist in failure turning up there. Just, it, it, it's too weird for me. Also based on recent uh, performance True. issues. But there are people who think that, you yeah. know, why not come in and try and get them organised? Mm. I'm, I'm not sure I quite ready to go down that path. It would be funny for a while, as it I always mean, is. Freddie Jungberg is, is mentioned as a potential yeah. interim, but I think it would still be a pretty hard job for him. Yeah. I think. He, and if he was honest, given that responsibility, I think that he needs to have someone come in and help him. Yeah. Sort of mentor him. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, and the final question comes from uh, Devang Sa. How does that Michael Thomas moment compare to any Premier League moment, particularly Aguero in 2012 or Leicester's surprise in 2016, uh, also considering Arsenal's Invincibles? It's the best ever. Yep. Um, okay. You know, everybody's entitled to their own purely subjective view. Which well, difficult using to those argue three, against, though. Using those examples for comparisons, and the, mo- the, the closest comparison is, uh, is Man City and the Aguero mm-hmm. title. But they the obvious difference is that that was not a situation where it was first against second winner takes all Mm -hmm. Uh, QPR were relegated yes Um, so for all the drama of the the late theatre of the moment and the the turnaround which makes it the most dramatic Premier League finish there ever has been if you're talking about the most dramatic football finish there's ever been in English football there is no contest between Aguero yeah. and Michael Thomas. And also, I mean, the, the fun thing about the Aguero moment is that you have, I mean, the footage is um, is very memorable. I think Phil Jones is the main Man United player who's still on the pitch, kind of looking around, waiting for the result of the other game. That's very interesting. But uh, Leicester City... Leicester City was, I mean... It, it was expected it, it, for it, a few it, weeks before. It lacked right? that, that sense yeah. of drama and, again, yeah. that kind of head-to-head sense of, yeah. of, of it. But, uh, but obviously, as a fairy story, that's the mm. best fairy story there's yeah. ever been. Yeah. So it, they're just different. But if you're talking about the most dramatic finish ever yeah. in the history of the Football League, to quote Brian Moore, um, then that's it. There's no, no, okay. no, nothing. No, it's no, very no, hard there's to not, I don't even think there's yeah. competition. Mm. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again soon. Cheers. Oh, also mm. buy the book. Sorry, I should have done that ages ago. Look, I've got it here. It's fantastic. 89, you can purchase it from all the bookshops that are available. And also you buy Invincibles as well, because that's really good. Just a bit older. There you go. Right, cool. Uh, thank you so much. Cheers. And we'll see you again soon. Cheers.